opportunity to interview Jennifer Weiner for a virtual event with Books and Books about her new book that summer. Here's the conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Good afternoon. Buenas tardes, and thank you for tuning in. I'm Katie Kempner, and on behalf of Mitchell Kaplan, the Miami Book Fair, and all of us at Books and Books, I want to welcome you to a virtual brunch with Jennifer Weiner to discuss her new novel that summer, published by our friends at Atria Books. So I'm sure everybody already knows about Jen, but just to give you a little condensed bio, she is the number one New York Times bestselling author of 18 books, including Good in Bed, That Summer, and an essay collection, Hungry Heart, Adventures in Life, Love, and Writing. She's a graduate of Princeton University and a contributor to the New York Times opinion section, and she lives with her family in Philadelphia. Throughout this afternoon's broadcast, you're invited to ask questions by clicking the Ask a Question feature at the bottom of the screen, and you can order your copy of That Summer from Books and Books below by pressing the green button. We appreciate each and every order and the generous donations from viewers everywhere. And now, without further ado, I'd like to welcome Jen to the virtual stage. Hello, Katie. It's Hi, so how are you? It's <laughs> nice to be here. It's great to talk with you again. Thank you so much to making the time. Absolutely. And, you know, before we start, I just want to say that um, we really appreciate you joining us. Um, I know I speak on behalf of everyone attending when I say we're so sorry for the loss of your mother. You. And you have so many great stories about her. We're going to celebrate this amazing novel now, but, you know, we know she meant so much to you. Thank you. Yeah, um, it was, she died on Mother's Day and my siblings and I have been saying, well, maybe she just wanted us to get that first Mother's Day without her like out of the way really quickly. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's been a week, but um, you know, my mom loved Cape Cod where this book is set. My mom loved reading. She was a lifelong, like 40 plus years member of two different book clubs. And we were going through her things and I found a notebook where she'd written down the names of every book that she'd read. And she never left a book unfinished. Like even if it was not her thing, she would like plow her way through it. And, you know, she was, she was amazing and we can't sit Shiva right now. Um, so I feel like this is kind of a version of like a virtual Shiva where I, so many of my readers met her because she would like come to events with me whenever she could. And so many of my readers feel like they got to know her because of the stories that I wrote or the stories that I told. So you know, this actually feels like a way to honor her memory. And I'm, I'm just glad to be here this morning. Well, I remember seeing you at the Miami Book Fair years ago, you interviewed Erica John, yes. 40th anniversary of the fear of flying and you're yes. with your mom and your daughters. Oh, and my Nana, my Nana was there too. Yeah, that's right. Uh-huh. We so. the whole mishpacha you got. All so of us. I, I want to start with another um, memory because I think it um, leads into our my first question, which is, um, I'm in Miami Beach, mm -hmm. but I'm from New Jersey, and mm -hmm. until the pandemic, I spent several times a month going to New York, mm -hmm. and my parents, especially my dad, who's about to turn 80 on um, next Saturday, um, would come in and see me in between my meetings. And one time, right after the um, the Time Warner Center was built, there was Barnes and Noble in there. And 
you were coming in to read a excerpt, like one of your, from Good in Bed. Oh. And my dad bought me the book and he said, you know, look over there, there's the author. And I couldn't stay. But 20 years ago, I mean, so much has happened for you since then. Could, could we start by talking about that? Oh my God. So my mom dies. My daughter turned 18 the next day. My daughter's going to college in the fall. I just feel like I've got sunrise sunset from Fiddler on the Roof, like playing on a loop in my head. I can't believe that it's been 20 years because I remember just so vividly, like writing that book and, you know, printing out this stack of pages and looking at them and saying like, I wonder if anybody else is ever going to want to read this, or if it's just going to like live in a box under my bed for the rest of my life. And I guess I just feel really lucky that I've gotten to continue to do this, that I, that I make my living writing, that I get to wake up every day and do the thing that I love the most in the world to do. But I mean, it's, I guess it's like, my, my daughter, like the 18 year old, I look at her and I'm like, I remember bringing you home from the hospital and you were tiny. She's like, I know mom. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think publishing has changed. There wasn't the internet when I was starting. And I, I like telling people the stories about finding my first agent. And like, I had to print query letters and mail them in physical envelopes that I had to take to an actual mailbox and like explaining to people what the process was like when you couldn't just Google an agency to find out if they were taking submissions or if the agent you were interested in was still alive. I mean, it was, it was a different world and it's a world my kids will never know. It's interesting. Well, part of the world now is so much around social media and you're, you're great at it. I mean, oh, and you, you went into TikTok now. Mm -hmm. so how much of that um, do you find yourself doing or how important do you think that is for your brand as an author? So I, other writers ask me, they're like, do I have to do this with like terror in their eyes? Like, do I have to be on insert new platform here? And I'm like, I really think you should only do the things that feel fun and that feel natural to you. Like if you are forcing yourself to go on Facebook or to go on Twitter or to go on TikTok, that's going to come through most likely. So if, if it's not something that feels comfortable to you, I say just like, don't, I mean, I'm really lucky. Like I'm a talker and I, I have opinions and I like to hear what other people are saying. And I like to, um, express myself creatively. Um, I will not be doing any of the viral dances on TikTok though. So don't, don't come follow me expecting to for that. <laughs> I do not dance, but you know, I, um, it's funny. I think about I think about social media a lot. I mean, it was it was part of the plot of Big Summer, which I wrote last summer. It's so funny. Somebody said, "Do you have a new book out?" I said, "Yes, it's called That Summer." She's like, "Didn't you have a book with summer in the title last year?" I'm like, "Oh yeah, last summer was Big Summer, but this summer is That Summer, and next summer is going to be the last summer if everything goes right." <laughs> but, you know, um I like the, the rap that social media got when my kids were little is like, this is a place where your children are going to be bullied and preyed upon by child sex traffickers who like just every terrible thing they would tell us is what's going to happen to your children. And 
you got to be careful. You absolutely do. And you want to raise kids who are going to be thoughtful and aware and suspicious and skeptical and believing that everyone is a 64-year-old man until proven otherwise. But I... I think there's some pretty like wonderful, amazing stuff that happens on social media. I think there's like a ton of body positivity, which is so great and which I did not have when I was a young woman and you only ever saw like one kind of body in the media. Um, I think it's a way for kids to connect and to find each other, especially during the year that we've had, like my 13 year old was able to find other kids who were into like the same anime that she likes and, and connect with them all over the country, all over the world. So I, I guess I think social media is a tool and like any other tool, you can use it to build or you can use it to tear down. But I've liked my time on social for the most part. I've had a good time with it. Well, you're you're a great person to follow. You you do a great like mix of things. Um, I haven't ventured onto TikTok yet. So. I okay. No. I feel like I was the oldest. I feel like I am the oldest woman on TikTok because I initially only got on it because my kids were on and I wanted to see what they were doing. And you know, then I was just like, this is kind of amazing. Like, look at these people that are doing just these amazing creative things and. I mean, there's a TikTok for everything. Like if you are into gardening, there is gardening TikTok. If you are a mom, there is like mom talk. If you are into Greek mythology, there's a guy that does TikToks about like Greek myths, like amazing. And I've learned things about makeup, which you might not be thinking to look at me right now, but I've gotten better. <laughs> I really have. Tutorials, they have changed my life. So I would, I would honestly... Um, I read a story in the Wall Street Journal, so it must be true, that said the fastest growing demographic on TikTok is moms in their 40s and 50s. So really? there it is. Yeah. Well, yep. then I need to check it out. You so. need to check it out. Yeah, you do. It's pretty great. And I do need to learn how to put on makeup because my daughter did this. So I need My daughter did this? <laughs> I have to pay her though. I don't think <laughs> well, well me too. <laughs> no, wait, okay, so, wait what is, what is, what are you paying? What's your rate? What are you giving her? I'm not saying. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll discuss this later. We'll discuss this off the air. Yes. We'll take that up, well, off the air. So last summer was big summer. Last we summer. Talk, and mm -hmm. now this summer is that summer. That summer. You wrote this book in, I mean, a crazy year, which crazy is being crazy as an understatement. When you were writing it, was it different than your normal writing process? Or could you talk about that a little, please? Okay, so normally, in, in a normal year, my daughters go off to school and my husband goes to an office and I stay at home, which is quiet and peaceful with my little dog, Moochie, and I write. And like many work from home people, it was like suddenly my office became a 24 hour diner, laundromat, gym, you know, everything. My kids were home because they were going to school virtually at first. My husband was home and I found that I really needed the escape of writing more than ever. Like I needed to be able to go into my, my office, which is also my closet like go into my clothes, close the door and live in my imagination. And I, I'm my own first reader. Like every writer is her own first reader. And so I wanted 
like a delicious escapist, like set on the Cape in this beautiful place that I wanted to be at, even if it was just in my imagination. But yeah, I mean, writing, when you go from that kind of solitude to not only having people around, but having the added stress and the added unknown of the pandemic, where it was just like, how long will this last? Well, we don't know. Um, you know, just waiting to see if anybody you knew was going to get sick or get really sick or or die or you know, it was it was a crazy crazy time and um, certainly a memorable time. I mean, I think a lot about like looking back at this, you know, from ten years or in twenty years and like how it's going to feel and like what did we learn, what did we figure out? But it was definitely a, a different experience. Yeah. So one of the things um, I saw that you posted on social the other day, and I actually saw it myself in the New York Times, the New York Times just called your book in a roundup that you are the undisputed boss of the beach read. And Good Morning America said, you know, this is a perfect quarantine read and the great summer read. And so I'd love to talk about the beach read category because your books and, you know, I, I said to you, I have read them all. Mm-hmm. They, they're so enjoyable and they suck you in, but they have meaning and there's, there's difficulties in them that are deeper. And mm-hmm. I think in, in this book too, talking mm-hmm. about things, not to give it away if you haven't read it yet, but things around me too and important topics are brought up. So how do you feel about being the undisputed boss of the beach read? Well, okay. So first of all, I think it's hilarious that anyone is calling me the boss of anything <laughs> because like, I just hear in my head, my kids saying, you're not the boss of me. And, you know, I just, I don't feel very like managerial, honestly, like I, I would side with labor over management, but um, beach reads are a funny thing because I always feel like there's a little bit of gender going on when we call things beach read, because you will notice that we don't generally talk about like a John Grisham book or a Michael Connolly book or a Stephen King book, which are popular and have a lot of plot and suck you right in and keep those pages turning and entertain you. We don't talk about those as beach books. Like there's not that kind of um, implication of fluffy, substance-free, it's just entertainment. Um, and and I, I'm not entirely comfortable with the term beach read because of what you said. Like I feel... I hope my books are entertaining. I hope that they're funny. I hope that the characters feel relatable and familiar and like women you know in your life who you enjoy spending time with. However, it's more than just the frothy, funny escapist. I I always want to be talking about something which writing about women lends itself to very naturally. Like when you're writing about a young woman, the topics of social media and self-esteem and privacy and branding and how much of yourself do you have to put out there these days, those feel very natural to address. And when I'm writing about middle-aged women, um, there's two protagonists in that summer. One of them is a married mom whose daughter is very eager to leave the nest. She's this teenager named Beatrice who is very singular and into cottagecore and taxidermy. Um, 
but I was thinking a lot about, there was an article that went viral last year and probably you read it. I think everyone like our age read it and it was called Why Generation X Women Can't Sleep. And it talked about this insomnia that's afflicted women who have aging parents, who have young kids or who have teenage kids and who have everything that the world told us we were supposed to have, you know, marriages, careers, homes, families, cars, kids, vacations, all of it. And yet something didn't feel right. It felt like something was missing or it felt like it was maybe too much. And just the way that women our age have been, um, have been, you know, we're, we're the meat in this generational sandwich. And what does that do? And how do you decide what the right life for you is? How do you figure out what's going to feel authentic and feel real and feel right? So that was one of the women's journeys or is one of the women's journeys in that summer. And the other woman has been through something that is very traumatic and also sadly very familiar to many, many women. Um, and I was thinking about Me Too, and I was thinking about just how the men in my life, my husband, my brothers, guys I work with, men I know, most of them were surprised when that all started to unfold. And they were like, my God, is it really so widespread? Is it really does, you know, I remember my husband, you know, I think it was like the day Matt Lauer was, had been Me Too'd and, and we were talking and he said, well, you know, do you have a story like that? And, and I said, which one do you want? Because I just feel like for every woman, whether it's street harassment or whether it's a boss who doesn't take you as seriously as your male colleagues or all the way up to sexual assault, like all of us have been through something. All of us know how that piece feels. And I think for a lot of us, it's just like the background noise of life. It's just, you know, you go out on a city street and you pull on this invisible armor because you know that, you know, maybe you're going to get stared at or maybe you're going to get catcalled or maybe someone's going to say something or whatever it is, you know, and it, it's, it's just um, so many women have been through something like that. And I wanted to write about it. And, and I know that people are going to call my books beach books, like no matter what I do, because, you know, they're set on a beach and there is some sort of fun fantasy escapist. There's, there's great food and there's sex scenes and there's those things. But I also feel after all these books and that summer is my 15th novel somehow, my readers know what I'm doing. And I think they know what to expect. They understand that they're going to be getting something maybe with a little more heft and a little more meat on its bones than just a frothy confection. One of the things that I like so much about this book is how you take on the importance of friendship. Mm -hmm. And I think especially during this time, it's been friends. I know my best friends, Kim in Virginia, and just that have gotten everybody through. And yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how friendship, how you see friendship playing in this book. Well, I, I think a lot about relationships and the relationships that women have and the, the impermanence of so many of them. Um, you don't have your parents all your life, as I'm learning. Um, your kids 
can't wait to get out the door in some cases and they come back but they're also you know they're on their own journey they're they're trying to individuate to use a really big fancy word to explain why your teenagers are mean and just say things like i can't wait to get out of here <laughs> um you know and and you have sisters or brothers or siblings some of us do but your friends are the people you choose to invite into your life those are the relationships that are intentional as a, as opposed to the ones that you're sort of born into and i think that friendships um i i think a friend is she can be a mirror you can look at her and see yourself a friend can be a map you can look at her and see all of the choices you didn't take all of the roads or some of them at least that you didn't go down um and and just like you said such wonderful wonderful support because i you know speaking for myself like my friends got me through this pandemic they've gotten me they're getting me through this grieving um friends show up for you in really really wonderful ways and when i when i wrote that summer i knew that i wanted it to be about that kind of a sustaining bond so i have daisy who's sort of my unhappy housewife and she starts getting these misdirected emails that are for somebody with a name very close to hers and at first she's just you know sending them back you know sorry this was misdirected but she finally decides to like send you know or or actually what happens is the the other woman says sends her an apology and says yeah i'm sorry this keeps happening i'm so embarrassed my friends are idiots and and the woman who is she daisy is her name and she's lost a friend like she has had this like wonderful friend all through her adulthood who she met in like the birth and delivery class and her friend died and she's she has this hole in her life where this friend used to be so when she meets diana when she meets this other woman she's very vulnerable to um or very just i guess in need of somebody and later we learned that this this meeting was not accidental that these women actually share some history even though daisy doesn't know it yet but i really did want to talk about the way that friendship sustains you and how it can feel to lose a friend um you know when somebody dies or when there's like a break in the friendship or even just when somebody like moves to the suburbs you know it can be hard if you've gotten used to having your bestie two blocks away and then she gets married and moves to the burbs that is a hard thing well one of the th yes that that is a hard thing one of the um one of my favorite things about these past two books is that they're set in the at the Cape, mm -hmm. and I I have spent I know I mentioned to you I have spent my whole life um, either spending the whole summer in Cape Cod when my grandparents had a house there, or at least going for some portion of it. I worked at the Lobster Hut, which is now Mac Shack. Mm -hmm how to swim at Gull's Pond, Gull Pond. And then my sister actually ran the swimming program there for a number of years. We, you know, go to PJs, which my sister said opened on Friday. And I noticed you don't talk about the box lunch. That's a big part of our life too. I've and never been. It's, it's weird. I know. Okay. I'm going to rectify that this summer when I go, but um, yeah, I, it's, so I grew up in Connecticut and i went to the cape with my parents every summer they would rent a cottage at calmar village which is this cottage colony right on the border of north north truro and provincetown 
And we would stay there and we would go to the beach every day and we'd run on the dunes and we'd go to P-Town and we'd see the drag queens. And I remember being like eight years old and just like looking at these amazing creatures and thinking like, my God, am I ever gonna be that beautiful? And I loved the cave. I loved being there. And it was just like, that became the place that to me felt like summer. I was like one of those salmon where I kind of imprinted and I have to keep swimming back there every year. Because when I moved to Philadelphia, um, people in Philadelphia go to the Jersey shore. They go down the shore, as they say. And the Jersey shore, also very beautiful, also very wonderful. Um, my husband grew up going there, so that's where all of his summer memories are, but it is not the same. Um, there's casinos for one thing, and there's boardwalks, and there's lots more people, and there's high rises, and all the stuff you don't get on the Outer Cape because the National Seashore owns so much of the land and has zoned it in a way that you can't have any of that stuff. So the Cape is a real, there, there's two things going on. There's the wild, unspoiled kind of anything goes, anything could happen characteristic of the landscape and these gorgeous, gorgeous beaches. And then you get Provincetown, which is incredibly like urbane and amazing restaurants and incredible theater and like Broadway performers that come through all summer long. And, you know, the stars of RuPaul's Drag Race that all show up. So it's an amazing place to be. And it's been an amazing place to set these books because I, I feel like I just want to give readers a chance to experience it too. It's I love it there so much. And I feel like even if it's just something that you're getting on the page, you know, I want everyone to have that experience. Well, you sum it up so well. Also, it's getting too crowded, so don't everyone come at once, except yes, for please. last summer. <laughs> but, you know, you have to wait at that boulangerie, bakery, mm -hmm. yeah. burn. Yeah. No. Stand in line for your croissant. Yeah. One of the things in this book, and, and in Big Summer too, but especially in this book, is how you talk about food. And it's so you you conjure up the cape at the beginning when um diana and this isn't giving anything away she's trying to convince her father to that she could go to the cape and she conjures up the taste of briny oysters and butter drenched lobsters fried clams eaten with saltwater pruned fingers and ice cream cones devoured a day after, devoured after a day at the beach that is cape cod you write so beautifully about food. <laughs> you also could be a food writer. Oh, thank you. I mean, I, I love to eat. I love to cook. I love the challenge of writing about food because obviously, you know, the same way you can't have like a scratch and sniff book, you can't have a scratch and taste one either. So I got to use words to kind of conjure those things up. But, um, you know, I there's so much deliciousness out there. There's so many yummy, wonderful things. And again, because I was writing this during the pandemic, I was thinking about escape and I was thinking about pleasure. And I was thinking about all of the things that make life worth living. And of course, food figured largely it, as I was listing the things. So I made one of my characters a cook. Daisy is this amazing cook. She um, inherits the cooking duties in her family. Um, she has an interesting family. She has two much older brothers. They're like 11 and 12 years older than she is. And then she comes along 
obviously unplanned and her mom is kind of over it a little bit and then her father dies when she's quite young and her mother just sort of spirals into depression and grief and this isn't how my life was supposed to be and daisy tries to pull her mom back to the land of the living by cooking she takes over the shopping she takes over making the dinners and she's an amazing cook and she she cooks for her mother she cooks for her brother she's really using food as the glue to try to hold this family together which i think is something food does i think you know we all know the dishes that we have every year on the holidays or you know, my Nana used to make a filter fish from scratch. Like, you know, she would get the fish, she'd grind the fish, the house would smell awful. Um, but then as she got into her 90s, she taught my mom to make it. And my mom taught me to make it. And I've got beautiful photographs of my Nana and my mom and my daughter, Phoebe, who was like two and a half on a step stool, like making gefilte fish. So, you know, I... It all the way back to like Proust's Madeleine, when you bite something and the taste of it takes you to a time and to a place that's very specific. I think that food is memory. I think that food is the, the mortar of the bricks of a family. I think that food can be something wonderful to look forward to if you're, you know, we're having like special sushi dinner tomorrow for Lucy's postponed 18th birthday. Um, so I love to eat. I love to cook. I love to write about food. And I, I have heard the complaint that like, you know, I love this book, but I read it before bed. And it made me hungry. So <laughs> watch out for that when you read that summer. Have a snack. So what do, what do you want people ultimately when they read this book to take away from it? That's a really good question. Um, so I always want my readers to be entertained. I always want them to feel like they've had like a little bit of a vacation between the covers. But I guess, you know, I don't want to make the book sound too heavy because I promise it's fun. It really is. But there's some big questions in there about justice and retribution and atonement. And what do those things look like as we consider what are we going to do with the Me Too'd men, right? Because some of them should be in jail. Like some of them should be in jail forever, the end, lock them up and throw away the keys. Like there's no coming back from some of the things that some of these men have done. However, we've already seen men sort of go into the purgatory of having been accused, having confessed, yes, I did these things. Um, I'm thinking about Louis C.K., who was at the very, very forefront of this whole movement, where he was accused of um, some really unpleasant behaviors with young female comics. And he said, yeah, I did these things. I guess I just got my signals crossed. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, when you've decided that masturbating in front of somebody is okay, like that, that is a hell of a signal to get across Louis. But he, you know, he was supposed to have a Netflix special. He gets fired from that or backs out of it or whatever. You know, he, he turns down some work. He steps away from projects. He kind of disappears for a year. He goes and sits in the naughty corner, as I've been joking. And then 12 months later, he comes back. 
He starts selling out comedy clubs again. There are people who cannot wait to hear him again. And there's been no work. There's been no, how do I make this right to the women that I've harmed? There's been no, how do I make this easier for the next generation of young female comics that are coming up through this really difficult industry? I don't think there was any kind of reckoning at the big agency that sort of circled the wagons around him and made sure that everyone thought these women were just like crazy and unemployable and making wild false accusations. Like nothing changed. And just in my opinion, just going away for a year is not enough. It's not what's going to ultimately change society. And I wanted people to think about that and to think about like, okay, these men are going to come back somehow. We know they are. Like that is a given. So what do we want to ask of them? What do we want to require of them? What is it going to take so that the world that my daughters and your daughters and their daughters and their daughters' daughters is a better world and a, a more safe world and a more fair and kind world than the one that we're sending them out into now. So that's what I wanted readers to think about. And, you know, what you said earlier that every, every woman, every woman has been through it, especially women our age, I think, or a little bit older. I mean, I think back on things that happened to me in my career as working in advertising and getting to go to a lot of very interesting places across the world with a lot of older men in attendance at conferences and things. And you, you'd think, you think back, and I talk about this with my friends, my work friends, it's like the, the way we were treated was so inappropriate, but in a lot of cases, those men thought they were complimenting us. Yeah. 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 And, and you know, it's, and, and I should also say, like, I, I've worked with some amazing men, and I'm sure you have too. Like, I've had editors, I've had mentors, I've had colleagues, just great guys. There are a lot of great guys out there. But yeah, I mean, the baseline of what was acceptable, like, it has changed. Like, you know, I'm sure our grandmothers had stories of what their life was like, and our mothers had stories. And I... I do think that, you know, it, it gets better incrementally, but yeah, I mean, just the stuff that everyone thought was completely okay or not worth remarking on that now it's just like, oh man, like that was super problematic. Um, my, my daughters were joking about like the comedies of the eighties and the nineties, like, you know, animal house and revenge of the nerds. And it's like, yeah, that, that had a rape plot and like, oh yeah, that, you know, where, where the guys are like, you know, surreptitiously taking naked photos of the, of the sorority girls and then selling their pictures to make money. I'm like, that is not okay. And I'm like, oh, we thought it was fine. We laughed. It's like, oh boy, the world, the world has some changing to do. The world has some changing to do. So I have to go back to something else that you said too, because, you know, it sounds like big summer, that summer, mm -hmm. this is going to be a trilogy. Is yes. there anything you can tell us? Yes. Okay. So like I said, big summer was last summer and that summer is this summer. And next summer, there's going to be the third book 
God willing, in, in what I have been thinking of very grandiosely as my Cape Cod trilogy. And there's a house in all three of the books. The house where the wedding happens in Big Summer is also the house where a big piece of the action in that summer happens early in the book. So the house shows up again in the third book and the matriarch of the family, who is a very minor character in that summer, she's now in her 70s, her children are grown and, and scattered. They live in different parts of the country. She's decided she's gonna sell the house. Like she's, they've, they've used it, they've gotten what they can out of it. They had all these memories. And she invites the family together for one last celebration before she puts the house on the market. So this huge, fractious, somewhat dysfunctional family gets together after the pandemic. So there are misunderstandings and miscommunications and mistaken identities and hopefully a lot of really funny stuff. Um, you know, as this family sorts itself out and reconfigures itself in the wake of what we've all just been through. So that is going to be the third book. I'm calling it The Last Summer. And I hope my publisher likes that title as much as I do. Because <laughs> um, it was interesting, that summer when I was writing it, the whole time I was writing it, it was called The Two Dianas. Um, because both of the women are named Diana, even though one of them calls herself Daisy. And I liked that title a lot, but my publisher felt that it it sounded, um, it didn't sound summery enough. And so they said, we got to put summer in the title and here we are. So here we are. Here we are. <laughs> so I'd like to invite everybody to ask a question in the ask a question section there. Mm -hmm. And um I see some questions already, so I'm going to ask a few. Awesome. Um, let me start by asking you, mm -hmm. um, this is a question that says you're so prolific, and can you share a little bit about your writing process and writing in your closet? That part oh. I just added because I think that's so cool. I, I, I love the process question. Okay, so... Um, before I became a novelist, I was a journalist. That is an important piece of what I'm about to share because I spent 10 years working at newspapers, writing on deadline, writing to fit a space, you know, like an editor says, you've got 12 inches for the sewage board hearing and we need it in an hour and you bang it out. And I think that that trained me really, really well for the almost like physical connection of like your butt goes in the seat, your fingers go on the keyboard and you tell a story. Even if you don't feel like writing, even if you don't think you have anything to say, even if you feel like you have no, like the well is dry and you'll never write again. Like you sit down and you type something, even if you delete every word of it the next day. So my process is, and it's changed as my kids have gotten older, but the way it works now is I get up in the morning around eight o'clock and my husband and I do the New York Times spelling bee together, which is, I, I highly recommend it. It's super fun. You have to make words. They give you seven letters and you have to make as many words as you can. Then we walk moochie. Then I usually exercise because I got to get it out of the way because if I don't do it first thing, it's not going to happen. And usually between 10 and 11, I sit myself down at my desk and I work for 
three or four hours um, with frequent interruptions for emails and social media. And I, when I started, when I left my, my job at the newspaper, you know, I was working like eight or nine hour days and I sort of figured, well, that's what it must be like. But I, I came to realize pretty quickly that I was not actually working all eight of those hours. I was having lunch and I was talking to people and I was, you know, doing this, doing that. So when I'm writing, you know, I just really focus. And what I found is that after four hours, I'm useless. Like I just can't do it any more than that. So I sit and I type and I generally have an outline. Um, when I start writing my books, I'll have a character in my head. I will start to hear her voice. I will have to figure out who she is and what she wants, because that's the most important question is sort of figuring out what she wants because she has to want something or else she's just going to sit there and be happy. And that's no, that is of no use to me. She has to want something. So I figure out what she wants. I figure out how I'm going to get it for her, hopefully, or get her what she ends up getting, which is maybe not what she wants in the first place. And I try to have like a word total. Like I try to write between like a thousand and 2000 words a day when I'm doing the rough draft, when I'm revising it, it's, it's totally different. And usually three or four months, I will have something that is book shaped and book sized, and I will edit it. And then I will give it to my husband to read. I'll give it to my agent. I'll give it to my editor. They'll give me notes, revise, revise, revise. And usually about nine months start to finish there will be, I, I used to joke like nine months, something's coming out of me. It's either a book or a baby, but that's, that's how it goes. And I write in my closet. I have this um, ginormous, ridiculous closet that it's like, I joke that it's the Carrie Bradshaw in Sex in the City 2 closet, except I do not have the Carrie Bradshaw figure. So thus I do not have the Carrie Bradshaw wardrobe. So my closet is basically, it's a closet slash library slash um, storage unit for my kids' school papers and stuff like that. And there's a little vanity where like a fancy lady would do her makeup. And that's where I put my laptop and that is where I write. A fancy lady. A fancy um, lady that I am not. So you mentioned Carrie Bradshaw and mm -hmm. nobody having her body. Mm -hmm. and this really ties into something I wanted to ask you and something that Sarah Mossinger wants to ask you mm -hmm. um, around body positivity. My mm -hmm. part of the question is, you know, you always... Um, in many of your books that it's the protagonist or someone is plus size or mm -hmm. um, you, you are very vocal on your social media about making sure, you know, being plus size and being in fitness. And I was saying to you before we started, I, I remember one post you did where you made sure that the arm was changed. Yes. On yes. The cover on the paperback version of mm -hmm big summer. Yep. Um, so this, so this question, and I guess um, it all ties in together. How did you decide to have the main ca character in big summer, you know, focus on being plus size and a body positive influencer. And I'd like to add to that. What does that mean for you as well, personally? Okay. So um, Toni Morrison famously said, if there is a book that you need to read and it's not on the shelf, you have to write it. So way back when, in the 90s, when I had just been dumped and I was brokenhearted and I was positive that nobody was ever going to want me, I thought 
about what kind of story I needed. And I wanted a story where a girl who looked like me, you know, a girl who was bigger than a bread box, you know, like size 16, 18, whatever, you know, shopping at Lane Bryant kind of girl. I wanted that girl to get a happy ending without having to go on the magic fictional diet that only exists in novels where she like magically loses 100 pounds and keeps it off for the rest of her life. I wanted to see a book where the big girl got a happy ending. And because I could not find that book, I had to write it. And I feel like I've had to keep writing it because I need to see those stories. And I think that lots of girls and lots of women need to see those stories because we are still fighting an uphill battle in terms of representation. And I think that there's still a lot of fat phobia, discrimination, prejudice, whatever you want to call it. Um, on my Twitter, I was getting ads for Target the last couple of days and they're selling swimsuits. And so there's like four women in bathing suits and one of them is plus size. And I'm looking at this ad and I'm seeing there's thousands of comments and I'm telling myself, don't read the comments. Nothing good will come of it. Never read the comments. But of course I read the comments and everybody's like, that cow needs to cover it up. You know, why are you showing us whales, Target? I don't want to see this. This is gross. And this woman is just living her life in her body. And, you know, I, I wrote a story for the Times recently about all of the pressure now that the pandemic is over, all of the um, the $79 billion weight loss industry took a major hit during the last year for obvious reasons. And now they want to um, recoup their losses. And, you know, I, I was... I, I put in the line, you know, diets don't work and everybody knows that diets don't work. And my editor said, you know, we need a reference for this. And so I'm like, oh, so many. But I actually went back and found like there's a study that they did um, that was prompted by all of the people on The Biggest Loser. So y'all know the show, The Biggest Loser. People, you know, they exercise for hours and hours. They eat next to nothing. Like Jillian Michaels is like incredibly mean to them and they lose tons of weight. Hooray, happy ending except they gain it back and they gain back more. And it turns out that there's like metabolic reasons that that happens where the more weight you lose, the fewer calories your body then requires to subsist on because your body is like, oh damn, a famine. Like, I guess we better like, you know, figure out how we're gonna do this on 800 calories a day. Like, it is so unfair. I mean, talk about the system being rigged, you know? It's like, yeah. because people are just like, well, just eat more and exercise less. Or, <laughs> eat, eat less. Other way. Exercise <laughs> more. But it's like, if you do that, your body screws you <laughs> and says, no, no. Um, you know, so basically my thinking is like better. Oh, and the other part of that study said that the the strongest predictor of whether overweight women go on to become obese or whether overweight children go on to become obese adults is are they or are they not put on a diet? The dieters end up heavier than the people who just, you know, where the messages they get are let's be as healthy as we can right now. And 
that is that is scientific fact okay that is the absolute undisputed scientific truth and these companies know it too they know that even if you lose weight on their programs you're probably going to gain it back and those pounds are going to bring their friends and you know what they want you to do is think that you've failed not that there's something wrong with the program not that your body is trying to subvert your efforts they just want you to think oh if i just try harder if i just stick to it more rigorously if i just do it longer if i just give them more of my money more of my time more of my effort um it's it's just such a scam honestly and i feel strongly you know, as somebody who was put on a diet when she was like 10 years old, like better to send the message of like eating healthy, moving a lot and, and understanding that bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So yeah, I mean, lots of plus size characters in my books, lots of plus size protagonists, lots of women getting their happy endings just as they are. And bodies come in different shapes and sizes, and those shapes and sizes change throughout your life. Right. As, you know, mothers of girls and women, my daughter is 21, so she is a woman now. Mm -hmm. I think people of all different sizes are unhappy with their body. I mean, I've struggled with what my body looks like. It's not plus size, but I've never gotten in my head that I look exactly right. And I think that's one of the things that I relate to because it really doesn't matter how much you weigh. It's also how you see your body, right? And you address that in your books. Yeah. And and the fact that like there's a lot of money tied up in making sure that we're never happy. Because if you're happy, think of all the things that you're not going to spend your money on or spend your time on. Um, I get it. I mean, you know, those people have to make a living the same as the rest of us, but I, I've tried really hard. I have two girls and I've tried really hard for like my home, at least to be a safe space where, you know, the only messages that they hear are, let's talk about what our bodies can do and not about how they look and where they hear every day that they're beautiful and also that they're smart and also that they're funny and also that they're accomplished and how proud I am of them. And I wish I could just like wrap them up in bubble wrap and just never let any of those messages that the world is going to send get through it. But they live in the world and they have the internet and it can be a really, really, really cruel place. Um, it can also be a place, however, where you can see bodies that look like yours and know that they exist, which, you know, when we were growing up, like, when did I ever see a body? I mean, there was like fat Monica on friends, which was, just for, which was just Courtney Cox in a fat suit. So right. I'm counting that, but you know, there, uh, back to science, like there are studies that show that if the more that you see bodies of different sizes just presented as normal without any judgment, you can actually reset your internal compass of what normal is and and thus feel a little better about yourself. And so I'm on a parenting website on Facebook. And of course, last month, everybody's posting prom pictures. And this woman, this, this broke my heart. This woman posts pictures of her daughter and her daughter is stunning. 
Her daughter is stunning. Her daughter looks like the Kardashians lost sister. Like she's curvy. She's got beautiful dark hair. And the mom said she's at her prom and she just texted me and she said, I just looked at the pictures and my arms look fat. And how could you let me go out in this dress? And I look terrible and I'm crying and you have to come get me. I want to come home. And I'm thinking, how is our world so broken that this gorgeous girl feels this way about herself? You know, what are the messages that she's been sent? And, and how do I keep those messages from getting to my children? Because I mean, it, it just, it was, it was heartbreaking. And I wish I could have like reached through the screen and told the mom to go on TikTok and follow not just Lizzo, but Lizzo is holding like an open call for like models and dancers for her tour right now. And all of these women are submitting videos of themselves, like these gorgeous, gorgeous women, you know, again, a lot of them, bigger women, not all of them, but like the more that you see that, and the more that you see that just accepted and treated as normal, the more you can start to believe that maybe you're okay too. But boy, oh boy, is the world a hard place for young women. And that's why you have to keep doing what you're doing and writing the way you write and sharing on, on social media because you're helping to make a change. So that is what I hope. I mean, that is really one of the things that I feel like I'm here to do. And, you know, nobody wakes up every morning feeling completely fantastic about themselves and everyone has things that they wish that they could change. But, you know, I've tried really hard to like keep the negative self-talk in my head and not have my daughters hear me say things like, Oh, I was so bad last night. I got to work that cake off in the gym or whatever. You know, I just want at least, at least their home to be a place where they feel beautiful and loved and appreciated. And I, I wish every girl had that and could go out in the world feeling a little more bulletproof. Yeah, I totally agree. So this has been an amazing conversation and I have to end by asking you one more thing because mm -hmm. of course we're talking with Books and Books, which is a bookstore at the Miami Book Fair. And yes. until last summer comes out, once we all finish this book, mm -hmm. are there any recommendations of books that you have not written, but that you really love that you could share with us? Okay. So, um, I read a book by a woman named Chelsea Summers called A Certain Hunger, which is about a female cannibal. I don't know if that's your thing, but if you want something a little weird, I would recommend that. Um, Cynthia Dupree Sweeney's new book, I know it was like a GMA book club pick, um, Good Company, which if you want to read about middle-aged women, you know, women who are letting go of their children, women, and, and another story about friendship, I really, really loved that book. Um, Emily Layden wrote a book called Just Girls, which is about an all-girls boarding school that sort of gets rocked by a, a Me Too scandal. So if you want to read more about that, um, somebody described it as my dark Vanessa meets prep. And I, I could not smash that buy button fast enough. I was like, yeah, I have to read this. Um, Oh God, I, I'm always, I'm always reading something. And if you follow me on social media, um, I will, I'm usually talking about what I'm reading. So please come find me on Twitter, on Facebook, on TikTok, and I will on Instagram and I'll tell you all about it. 
fantastic. Jen, on behalf of myself, Books and Books, the Miami Book Fair, everyone watching, I just want to say thank you so much for spending time with us today. You're so welcome. And thank everyone. I'm, I'm so grateful to everyone who's here. And I am so grateful to Books and Books and to all of the great independent booksellers who you know, who kept it, kept it together during this pandemic, who have pressed so many wonderful books into my hands and into my daughter's hands. I just appreciate and cherish independent bookstores. And I, I know all of you do too. So thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Have a great day, everyone. Bye-bye.